Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in, these deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Hello and welcome into the 24-7 Sports Football Recruiting Podcast. I'm National Recruiting Analyst Cooper Patagna, typically joined by 24-7 Sports Director of Scouting Andrew Ivins, but he's getting hitched this weekend down in Fort Lauderdale. We're very happy for him. But I got somebody to keep his seat warm, and I'm pretty excited about that. The guy with a top 20 winning percentage all-time in college football history is also the head coach of the Washington Huskies from 2014 to 2019 before that. The Boise State Broncos, good friend of mine, somebody I consider a mentor. That is Chris Peterson, Coach Pete. Good to see you. How are we doing? It's been a while. I mean, we talk on the phone all the time, but it's been a while since I've seen your face. How you doing, man? Yeah, I'm doing good, Coop. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Look forward to uh, diving deep into wherever your brain takes us. <laughs> we are going deep. It's a, it's a wide range of topics that we're going to try to cover today, hopefully in under an hour. But, you know, I was thinking to myself a little bit, all right, I know this guy really well. I've spent, I've spent two years working with him. I know how he works. You're very different. And I kind of wanted this to be a little bit different of an interview. You know, our my job on here is to cover recruiting. But I think, you know, I wouldn't be doing this interview justice if I didn't talk to you about the things that you're really passionate about. And I know it was a really difficult decision for you almost three years ago, right? A little over three years ago when you stepped away from the game, you're 55 years old. I remember it like it was yesterday. You walking into that staff room, making that decision. I don't think there was a dry eye in there. We'll kind of revisit what went into that decision. But I, I, I want to know from you, three years have gone by from where you're sitting now. You go through that reevaluation process. You're, you're, you're recharging. I know you, you're one of the most competitive people I know. I mean, what what has the last three years been like for you being on the sidelines, watching the game evolve rapidly, and then you kind of trying to find your place in this new world with life without football for the first time in a long time? Yeah. Well, I'm glad we're talking about this because if we were going to get into recruiting, I wouldn't, it'd be a short conversation because I don't know any recruits anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... Um, 
Yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a really, um, I don't know what the right word is. I don't want to say like wild three years since I stepped away. It's been a really good three years since I stepped away for me personally. You know, the reason that I stepped away, I mean, this, we could go on hours about this, but just briefly, I mean, the, the reason I stepped away is because I just felt like I was not, I was heading in the wrong direction of being my best. It happened to me one time before, really at my, at the end of my run at Boise. And I couldn't make sense of it. Why? I, I got this one, I had a wonderful job at Boise. We were winning a lot of our games. And so like, why am I not feeling like energized and fired up to be here and continue to grow and, that's always been my thing. Like, what's the next thing? How can I get better? And it's just, it felt like something was just blocking me. So come to Washington by the end of the run, the same thing, the same thing, the same feelings really crept up on me hard. Couldn't figure it out. And at that time I knew the only way I was going to get a chance to figure this thing out was to step away that I was not going to be able to figure it out in the job. It just, I'd been through that before and I, you just, I just couldn't, I could not make sense of it. And so, yeah, like you said, when, when I made that decision, you know, that was one of the hardest things I ever had to do, you know, to go into that staff room and tell everybody in, in the staff room and then go tell all the kids and, you know, especially when I didn't really know exactly why, although that I just felt it needed to be done. I felt like it wouldn't have been fair to everybody in that staff room or in that team room with our players if I didn't step away because I felt like, you know, Washington had so much, I mean, so much to offer. And I really would be holding them back if I didn't take a step back to get clarity on my situation and then figure it out from there. So how long you, you talk about feeling that, right? Like I, I was watching another interview that you did and you talked about trading in one set of problems at Boise state for another right. set of problems at Washington. So you had been feeling that for quite some time and saying like, Hey, the, the walls are kind of closing in on me. I, I have something that I've identified that like, you know, I remember we would win football games and it felt more like a relief than a joy. Yeah. Right. Totally. And so you had had that feeling for for quite some time, which I don't think, Pete, as long as you've been in the industry. And as I know, I mean, I was I was 28 when that happened. The thing that registered with me the most was here was a guy at 55 that had had so much success right in this game, which it was a bottom line. You were defined every day when that when that clock struck zero at the end of a 60 minute game, whether you succeeded or whether you failed. And what struck me on that day that you decided to step away was I had some feelings of what you were describing at that point at 28 years old. So you, you, you think to yourself, Hey, I can't be the only one feeling this. And the hard part is right. You have this ultimate huge responsibility. You're, you're the head coach. It's, it's completely, different realm. But I mean, I, I just wonder, I think if you were to ask many of coaches in college football, many support staff members, there's always kind of this point in the year where you're like, man, individually, I feel like I got to get some things figured out, but when am I going to have the time 
to do that. And I completely agree with you because really ultimately when I, when I stepped away from the game and not to bring myself so much into the picture here, but that was the same feeling. I felt like, Hey, there were some things in my life that I needed to get corrected that unless I had an S on my chest, there was just no way I was going to be able to get my life right before I could be the person that I needed to be for the program. Yeah, no question. And, and, and I don't think it matters if you, I think 28 is really an interesting age um, because I think I've talked to, I've talked to a handful of businesses that have the 28 to 35 year old employees, you know, they have their MBA, they're charging, they're starting to climb. And then they're thinking exactly what you're talking about. It's like, wait a minute is this what it really is all about? Like just getting that next promotion, getting that next paycheck, you know, uh, you know, about achieving and winning and all those type of things and the grind that comes with that. Or, you know, it hits us all at different times. Like, um, you know, it took me a long time to, you know, kind of hit that wall. I mean, um, I probably hit it, so when I stepped away at Washington, that was 33 years of straight, you know, of coaching. And the problem is, you know, with coaching is there is no real break. There's just, unless you're really skilled at it in terms of like compartmentalizing your life and then building in like break periods. So the, you know, that's the problem is like everybody needs recovery. Like everybody needs daily recovery and then, maybe to take, you know, some weeks to recover when you are in it every day and working so many hours. And so when you don't do that, it's going to catch you sooner or later. And yeah, so you, you know, you know, like we've talked about this, the hours that are worked in football are stupid. Like I'm embarrassed to look back. And I, and I even, and you know this, like I even kind of prided myself on, uh, you know, we're not going to be one of those people who sleeps in the office. We're, we're not doing that. Um, we need to get out of here and try to catch our breath a little bit, but I still think we worked way too many hours. I think if we would have worked less hours, we would have been more effective. So there's a lot of things that, you know, in the last three years that I've had a chance to really dive deep into, talk a lot of to a lot of smart people inside the industry, outside of it, reflect, read, all these different things. And there's a bunch of things that I would do differently, I think, to make me a more effective leader and coach and to help everybody around me as well. Have you found what you're looking, you know, what you were looking for, right? When you fast forward three years and, and we're to now, right? And you and I had a really intriguing conversation the other day about being challenged and being stressed, right? And, and balancing the comfort zone and the, and the, and, and the stress level, right? To, to, to grow and how hard and how difficult that is to find. I think when you're in an environment like football, you don't have a choice but to be really in what you like to call the panic zone. Right. But is would you would you categorize that as healthy? I would say probably not. Right. So now you and life after football, like I said, you know, I, I talked about the, the competitor that you are earlier in the show, because I know there's got to be a little bit of you that's saying, like, how do I scratch this itch 
fulfill myself here in this next phase of my life? And if you have done that, how have you done that? And if you haven't done that, what's what's that search been like for you? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I've competed for a lot of my life and, you know, I think all coaches, you know, like, you're not gonna be a coach if you don't love that, like to get in there and, you know, compete. And, but I don't think that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Like for me, I think it's about growth and improvement for me as a human being and in my life of some other things that I'm doing. And the second thing is, I think it's about impact. Me making an impact, some small little impact in this world, in the little, in, in my little world that I operate in. And I think as long as I've found some things that really ignite me and energize me, that can, um, you know, help me grow. And I'm excited to get better in certain areas of my life and the things I'm working on. And then also make an impact. I, I'm heading in the right direction. And I'm competitive in those arenas right there. Like I want to be really good in those areas. And I want to get better. And I want to help others get better. And so I look at that as, you know, kind of that, that competition type thing, which is different than being on the sidelines and looking at the scoreboard. But those are the things that, you know, get me going right now. You go back to 2006. Right, your offensive coordinator at Boise from 2001 to 2005. You get your first head coaching job. Actually, I don't know, Coach. 197, uh, 1987 and 1988, head freshman coach at UC Davis. Yeah, <laughs> how about yeah. that, man? We went back. But 2006, if you could go back and tell yourself before you took that job, where you're sitting right now, if there was something that you would like to tell yourself at that point that you would want yourself to know before you went on this 13 year head coaching journey, what would it be? Yeah. And Coop, you know, one thing when you talked about that freshman job that I had when I was probably 22 years old, that's an interesting situation that we could come back to because <laughs> I, I that's, that was a huge game changer for me in terms of the direction of my life and what I learned there. But um, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. You know, you know, what advice would you give to your younger self, you know, going back to 2006? And that's a really great question because, you know, it would be something like <laughs> slow down, pump the brakes. You're heading into a very difficult arena that is going to be um, difficult to stay on track in terms of finding joy, peace, fulfillment in the job. You can have a lot of success by society standards and still be way off track. Because the one thing that I have learned is that winning, you know, can mask so many things. It's almost like a numbing agent or a drug that can make you think you're on the right track when really you're not. And I think that's one of the things that happened to me is that, you know, we were winning a lot and because of the pressures of the job and all the things we were just talking about, the grind of the job as well, it's very easy to start sliding off track in terms of being your best. And, you know, I think that being your best and, and growing in the right ways, you can still do those things, but you can also be heading the wrong direction. 
Yeah, we talk. I, I mean, you and I have talked about that. You know, like you're you're a wordsmith. You have these personal philosophies built up with a lot of the things that we talk about. But you know, we a lot of the times, you know, you you brought it up to me, and we talked about, hey, there's a society scoreboard out there, right? And then there's your own personal scoreboard. And I think what's hard to balance in football is you're exactly right. Because by society standards, you can be having a lot of success. You can win a lot of football games. You can win conference championships. You can have a, a college football playoff appearance. But, you know, it, in terms of, you know, like I, I know for me, I think I, I told you this, but you know, when I got into the industry, I was like 21 or 22. And I had three goals that I wanted to hit. And they were pr- pretty silly going back. I wanted to be a director of player personnel by the time I was 25 at a top 25 program. I wanted to make X amount of money and I wanted to drive the car that I had always wanted. And by the time I was 25, checkbox, checkbox, checkbox. And then I got there and I realized that none of those things brought me any type of fulfillment, satisfaction, or happiness. And I was kind of asking the wrong questions the entire time. And it came to a point where you say, hey, I kind of got to I got to reevaluate what my values are here. And I think a lot of times it's easy because of the reinforcement from the public to kind of get washed away in the stuff that really may not matter as much as you think it matters. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, all those three, those three goals that you had, you know, are all about society scoreboard, you know, it's winning, it's approval, it's status, it's um, you know, it's, it's all those type of things. Um, you know, promotions, hours worked, like all of those medals that we'll wear on our chest. And I'm not saying, I mean, that's the world we live in. And I'm not saying like being goal oriented and achieving those type of things is a bad thing at all. I mean, we're, like I said, we're wired to hunt. And so, but what you said is those aren't going to be the things that really fulfill you. Those are things that, you know, create maybe happiness like you talk about, you know, defining words. So happiness to me is like brief moments of fulfillment. Great. Like you get that car, you get that job, you get that promotion, you make money. Awesome. Makes you happy for a short period of time. And then like, now what? I'll go back to 2006 when I first became, you know, the head coach at Boise State. I always wanted to be on an undefeated team when I was, since I've been, I don't know, since I started playing sports, since I was eight years old or whatever. And I never was through my entire college career, high school. um, And then becoming a coach, I was same goal. I want to be on an undefeated team. I had that written down and we got close, you know, a handful of times, but never got it. So my first year as a head coach, you know, we win and we have that undefeated season in dramatic fashion in the Fiesta Bowl against Oklahoma, against Oklahoma. And, you know, the it kind of lights the college football world up and they're buzzing about that game. And certainly the state of Idaho and Boise's buzzing about that, not only for weeks, but for months and maybe even years. But I'm telling you, two weeks, probably two to three weeks after that game was over, I'm looking around going, wait a minute, did I miss something here? Why does this not feel like I thought it was going to feel? And I don't know what I thought it was going to feel like. But I thought it was going to be like, like, I don't know if I thought I was going to change my life or, you know, have that great feeling that you have a day or two after a game and like it's going to stay with you. I don't know what I thought. 
But I know two or three weeks later, I'm looking around when everybody else still talking about it. I'm going, did I do that the right way? You know, did I get, did we just get lucky doing that? And there might be some truth to that, but it's like, I need to figure out how to be more undefeated was in my, my head, you know, and it was a letdown. It was a tremendous letdown after a while. And that should have been like the first really big red flag. Like, wait a minute, what's going on here? You need to reevaluate, reevaluate some things. And, you know, that didn't really happen. You know, it's just kind of like, okay, on to the next thing. How do we keep moving the bar? How do we keep winning games? And, but there's been so many things I look back in my career on the things we're talking about that there were red flags along the way um, that were just, gosh, I just, you lose perspective of, or I wasn't taught well enough. And so, yeah. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the 24-7 Sports Football Recruiting Podcast. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. Backed by research, kids using IXL are scoring higher on tests. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. Rather than looking at multiple programs to help your child in different subjects, one subscription gets you everything with IXL Learning, and all the kids in your home work off once from pre-K to 12th grade. If your child is struggling, this is the smartest investment you can make. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com IXLAV. Visit IXL.com IXLAV to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Coach, your 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 passion for teaching, that's what I'm gonna call it. I'm not gonna call it coaching, but yeah. your passion for teaching. You know, when I when I arrived at Washington, everything was like backwards, right? To me. Like I, I started my career at Alabama. And you and I had a long conversation in your office about this. And I said, everywhere I've been, it's been result oriented. You know, like at the end of the day, it's very black and white what we need to be, what we need to achieve in order for us to be successful. Washington was the first place I ever went to where we were doing so many things every single day, talking about who we wanted to be and what we wanted to strive for in terms of a culture, in terms of an unrelenting standard and how to get there. And when we failed, how to pick ourselves up and ultimately succeed at the end of the day. And it was, it was, it was a shock to the system for me because all along the way, it was winning and losing, and it was pretty black and white. And here, sure, there's a desired result that we want on the football field. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to reference this story, what I thought was interesting. You know, Charles Leno, who was somebody you coached at Boise State, was recently, I believe, nominated for Walter, Mate, uh, Walter Payton Man of the Year Award uh, for the Washington Commanders in the NFL. And I've seen you put out countless first round draft picks, our time together at Washington, dating back to your time at Boise State. And I can't remember you talking about a player and getting more emotional or looking more proud than you did of Charles Leno. And, the, and to me, anybody that knows you, I mean, it's no coincidence that he has gone on and exemplified everything that I think you believe in at your core of what you want these young men to hopefully develop into 
at the end of the day. And I just wonder, like, that passion for, for you, where did that begin where that was something that you felt so strongly about that you wanted these young adults that would step into your program? And hopefully by the time they left, they learned a lot more about being a man than, than what it would take to be a really good football player. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think, you know, we all have this story, our story or the narrative of our life. And that really informs so much of how we think about things. And if we're going to teach or coach or lead how we do those things. And so, you know, it's hard to say exactly, you know, I, my dad was a coach and I didn't, the one thing in life that I thought I was not going to be was a coach because I saw the things that he would go through. I'm like, I'm not doing that. But I didn't really understand what he was doing. You know, I just kind of watched it from afar. I, you talk about competitive. One of the reasons I said I'm not doing that, I would, he, he was a junior college coach his entire life. And I would go to his games. And I, well, I remember this in like in high school. I'd go to his games. They'd lose a game. And I would watch the players come off the field and in the locker room. And I felt like I was more irritated, depressed, disgusted when they would lose than some of the players. Like, I'm like, I care about this more than what I'm seeing some of these players. <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm not doing that. So I didn't really understand some of the things that go on behind the scenes. Like, it's more than just winning games. And then I go to UC Davis and I get with some game-changing coaches. You know, Jim Soker, who's, you know, since passed away, but in the College Football Hall of Fame, and Bob Foster and Bob Biggs. I mean, these guys were like game changers, so far ahead of their time, just in terms of how they treated us and and also how they taught us the game. And so obviously that was a thing. But, you know, I just there's so many things, you know, from starting going through UC Davis where I couldn't stand school. I hated school. I knew it was important. But if it wasn't for football, I probably wouldn't have went to college. Not because I was on a scholarship. I, I didn't, you know, I went to a junior college for a year and a half, played two years there, and then went to Davis. So there's no money. I mean, it took me 10 years to pay off my student loans. And I always say that's the best money I ever spent. But I was in college because I just loved playing football. I remember calling my dad and going, hey, dad, I was a junior. I cannot stand school. And if it wasn't for football, I'd be out of here. And he'd like, great, keep playing. You know, who do you guys play this week? You know? <laughs> and I'm like, huh? And just like, even that, like, I get that. Like I could relate to our players, not liking college and not liking school because you don't have a vision. What am I going to do with this? This stuff is hard for me. Like going to class and studying on stuff that's boring and I don't really like... So that was part of our Built for Life program. It's like, I get you. You know, I'd always ask our, our players this, like, hey, how many guys like school? You know, half the team would raise their hand or a little bit more. And I'd say, oh, really? That's interesting. You know, three quarters of our team might like, really like school. And I'm going to say, and I'd tell them my story. And I would say, you know, I couldn't stand school. And this is why I stay. And I said, let me ask you again. How, how many guys really like you know, school in here, like eight guys would raise their hand and I'd say, God bless you eight. I wish I was you going through this, that I really like kind of knew where I, you know, why I like school, where I was going to maybe head outside and the rest of you guys, I get you. Like I was you, 
but you need to do this. Like it's going to make sense down the road and you're going to connect the dots. And this is the foundation for being a lifelong learner. And it's being disciplined on doing things you don't really love in your heart, but you know it's something you got to get done that's going to help you down the road. So that would be part of my narrative, right? And so all these things throughout my, I would just take these lessons that were hard for me or I'd see our players go through and try to like use football as a platform to like teach life lessons. Like that's, you know, and you hear this so often, like, you know, the sports is such a microcosm of the world and life, but it, it really is like the hard things that you go through. You can just flip it and use that, that's that football or sports as kind of the carrot and what we're learning in this thing. And I just, I learned that early on. And then I started, we started doing that so much with our players and they might not have understood it right then and there, but I then started coaching long enough that they would come back shortly and go, coach, all that stuff you're talking about. This is so much like, I think about this all the time in my life now or in my work life, like we're talking about the same stuff. And so that poured fuel on my fire to say, we're on the right track here. I think you learned a little bit in school, Pete. You got a bachelor's degree in psychology from UC Davis, right? 1988. And then you also got a master's degree. So let me education. tell you this. So let me tell you this. Like, let me tell you this. <laughs> so when I get done playing football at Davis, right? All I, I knew I needed to get this degree, myopically focused, had no thought of what else I was going to do. I just like playing football and I knew I needed to get a degree. So when I'm done, I actually had an opportunity to go up to Canada and play. Two days before I'm ready to go, I get a phone call from the Montreal Alouettes. Hey, hold tight. We got some money issues. I'm like, money issues? What? They must not want me. They must be trying to get out of a contract or whatever. I open up the paper back then because there's no internet. There's no cell phone. Sure enough. Montreal Alouettes had folded up. They're back in business now, obviously. But um, I'm like, what am I going to do now? And so I sat there for two or three weeks going, I didn't even have a plan like coming out of college. I didn't think about like and the football thing I thought was just going to kind of work out. I go to Canada. So as I'm sitting there trying to figure this out, I really cannot figure it out. And I'm thinking, I don't know what to do. I either go, you know, <laughs> travel and walk around and I don't even have any money to go travel. So it's like, well, I either go work at 7-Eleven or maybe I go back to school because I, I worked hard in school. One of my professors said, hey, what do, you, what do you think about grad school? I'm like, no, because, well, you could get into grad school if you wanted to. So three weeks later, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to grad school. I call my mom. Mom, I found, I, I know what I'm doing. She's like, what? Did you get a job? Where? I'm like, I'm going to go to grad school. <laughs> She's like, wait, what? You hate school. Why would you go to grad school? I said, eh, no, I think, you know, maybe I'll do some of the psychology thing. And I just didn't know what else to do. Like I was just buying time. And I kind of like some of the psychology stuff. And so like, that's part of the narrative, right? Like it's like, I, and then heck, if I would have like fast forward, like years later, I should have been, I should have got a PhD in psychology and that would have really helped my coaching world, if that's what I wanted to go into, like, and it's certainly the masters and the, the area I was in did help me, but I had no like thought that's what I was going to do with it. I just didn't know what else to do. 
I think you got your own PhD in football right yeah, now. You do. Yeah. You get into the school of hard knocks. Yeah, you've earned it. Yeah, you're the dean of the school of hard knocks. All right, I, I do want to talk a little bit about your resume. I mean, UC Davis, the first job. Then you go to Pittsburgh in 1992, coaching quarterbacks. Portland State for a cup of coffee, as is typical in, in college football. Oregon from 95 to 2000, and, and then to Boise State. But, you know, I've never asked you this, but if you, if you look back on your, your coaching resume and your experience in college football, I mean, is there one – person, I'm going to try to limit, limit it to one that you really like go back and say like baseline for me, like this, this is the guy that I, I still till this day, not even coaching football draw from, from an experience standpoint, and maybe just to, you know, not only improve me as a coach when I was doing it, but in, in my personal life as well. You know, that's such an, I get that question a lot. And I, I have a, a bunch of people and they're not only guys that I coached for as an assistant or like, you know, I mentioned my coaches at Davis, like the one thing that I would always do Coop in my journey, in my travels, I've always been passionate about learning, whatever it is. If it's something that I'm interested in football leadership, how to build a team, what we're doing here today, like I will pay really close attention. And I always say, man, I I've never really had an original thought uh, in my life and came up with something, you know, on my own. I just really feel like I watch other people and things strike my heart and say, I love that. That really makes sense to me. That does not make sense to me. I don't like that. I'm staying away from that to whatever it is, like that style, that system, that way of doing things. And I know there's a lot of ways that work. So I'm not saying, but it just, that doesn't resonate with me. And so I've always been paying attention to the people that I work for that were like outstanding. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, like my career, my journey happened because the people that were put in my path. And I just, I was so blessed from my college coaches to, you know, Paul Hackett. I mean, they each have like this unique thing about them. Paul Hackett, the University of Pittsburgh. I mean, I've never seen anybody that could teach the game of football and quarterback play, you know, before or since then at that level, I was just mesmer. This guy's like the greatest teacher I've ever been around and like looked at that. And then, you know, I go to Portland state with Tim Walsh, who's building that Portland state program and then go with Mike Bellotti to Oregon and he was such a just a down to earth, awesome person. And then Dan Hawkins, a good friend of mine that we went back to Davis at Boise. So it's all these people. But then it's also the assistants that I worked with. Like I'd go, that guy is so on it. And I love this guy. And I would, you know, I just learned from all of them. So that's, I mean, we, you know, we could talk for three days on how this is. It's not any one it's just like a lot of people that I feel like I was blessed that I just latched onto and I really learned from them. I want to ask you about what you believe the word culture means to you, what a successful locker room culture looks like. Because, I mean, how, how many press conferences do we see year in and year out yeah. people talking about culture and it's just words on a wall? Right. And, and most of them are, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to walk a certain way. We're going to do this. And honestly, I mean, from the, the majority of the buildings that we're in, it's just 
it's a it's a loosely defined term that almost feels like you're just checking a box and yeah. saying this is this is who we want to be on paper, but do we live it every single day? And the reality is, majority of the programs don't. Doesn't mean you can't be a successful program or a successful uh, team on the field, but like the culture to you was obviously in my mind, it was the most important part of the program to you. And I want to specifically talk about the challenge of like 2014, you come over from Boise to Washington and you got a lot of dudes on that team, you know, guys like Shaq Thompson that, that you inherit uh, and Marcus Peters as well. I think we all know, you know, that story, but you know, you come into that team and it's like, this is who I am. This is who I want us to be and to strive for. I mean, it's one thing when you recruit those guys and bring those guys into, into your program, but it's, I have to imagine a completely different challenge when you inherit a group and say, okay, there's a new sheriff in town. I mean, how do you meet those guys in the middle and say, hey, we, we have to buy in to this idea of this is how we're going to operate here? Yeah. Well, you know, like I've said before, um, and I think – the, like the word that you said would be completely wrong. There's a new sheriff in town. Like, I think that's how a lot of people think like, this is my way or the highway. And I've learned so much from reflecting back on that situation. Right. And if I had to do it over again, how I would do it, because I think there's a lot of ways to skin the cat, so to speak. I really do. There's a lot of ways to be successful, run your program. I agree with you. I don't even really like, as much as I was into culture, I don't even really like talking about culture because this is just like ad nauseum. Like everybody's just like culture this and culture that. And I don't think a lot of people like, I think they give it great lip service and they don't really know how to do it. Like, I think there's some things like, I think you need to think environment first. See, I think environment, like how do you create this environment where people can do their best work? In the here and now, culture is more of a long game. It's about like, you know, the values and, and, and um, you know, the beliefs and the principles that we're going to take a while to really like assimilate into our DNA. And so I think a lot of times people can't even get the here and now right. And so that's why the culture never comes to life. So that's one thing. But I, the reason that I've always been into culture and the leadership and the team building is a couple reasons. When I first became the head coach at at uh, Boise State, I really didn't pay attention. That, like, I'm just used to calling plays and being in film rooms and, you know, practice and what that looks like. And probably five months into the, you know, my time there, I could feel the really good culture that we had built there through Dan Hawkins that, you know, I was with for a handful of years who had left to go to, I could feel us like kind of sliding away from just how it was. And I'm like, Whoa, let's pump the brakes here. We need to figure out who we are and who we want to be. And I just really, I always use this analogy. It's like, this is going to be our train tracks because we know this is going to be a tough journey. And when things don't go right for us, we are not going to start grasping for straws. We know, let's just get back to who we are and who we're trying to be. And when things get really good for us, because they're going to be good and we're going to win a lot, we're not going to get full of ourselves and go over here. We're going to stay right back true to who we're trying to be. And so that kind of aha moment hit me early 
And we really latched onto that. And I also thought like, it just really felt like when we're trying to, these are the standards that we want to be about. This is us living at our highest, our highest level. This is like, you know, it's inspiring to try to live to these standards that we're trying to create. And so this is our lives. So let's try to create this, this work environment where our thoughts, our words, and our actions all align. And we feel good about coming into the office and working these God, these God awful hours and being with each other. Let's at least like being around each other and rowing in the same direction. Because if we're not, it's just miserable and our life's just going to fly by. So let's get this culture right and fight for it. And that's what I learned early on. It's like, you can have all these great ideas and words. If you are not, like, that's what you said. I was talking about it all the time. You've never been to a place like people talk about it and they throw it up on the wall. Like, okay, we got it. We're good here. Well, that's like a football coach, like putting the play on, on tape and saying, Hey, we good here. We got it. Let's go play on Saturday. I know we'll execute that. Like that's ridiculous. So my job was to every day fight for those thoughts, words, actions, and belief and get everybody else like acting and believing in those things. Was it difficult for you to do that? And I think I know the answer to this, but was it difficult for you to do that when there was a particular stretch of maybe the season or off season where you felt like more time needed to be focused on the football side? Or was it like, hey, this is a complete non-negotiable. This is going to be who we are every day. I'm going to fight for this. And by the end of our guys' time here, this is this is what we're going to be about. And this is what we're going to practice and preach. Yeah, you know the answer to that. Yeah, it was non-negotiable. Like, you know, as much as I love football and wanted to be in that that film room, for me, that was my job as the head coach, as, as the leader. Like, I would have loved to have been the offensive coordinator. That was the, probably the best stretch of my life as being an offensive coordinator. Like, nothing like it. But when you take that other, you know, you go into that other chair, so to speak, I just think it's a different, it's a different job. It's a different responsibility. Someone's got to do it and fight for it, or it's not going to go how you want it. Like, there's human nature takes over too much, and there's too many people involved, and – you know, the way that we're all kind of wired as selfish human beings, you know, deep down, if we are not fighting and trying to align everybody in the right direction and preaching and promoting and practicing all these things that we're going to talk, it's not going to happen. So someone's got to do that. And if it doesn't happen, start at the top and then comes alive from the bottom, from the locker room. And I, I mean the bottom, like that's really the heartbeat of your program, right? But like, if they are not getting it and believing it, you got no, you got no chance. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the 24-7 Sports Football Recruiting Podcast. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. 
For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. To me, my experience everywhere outside of Washington, the first thing to go is culture. Like the, the, the moment it hits the fan, it's like, hold on, we got to get back to the drawing board because you know coaches, right? You give them, you give them a marker and a whiteboard, they can, sit, they can stay up in the office all night and try to figure out a problem that really doesn't exist. But with culture, it's like, I can't get to it right now. We don't have enough time. We got we to gotta focus on what's important. That's winning football games. But really, the root issue, a lot of the times, is standing right in front of you. That's kind of the way that I've always viewed it. It's, it's like it's a secondary priority for a lot of people. Yeah, 100%. And most of the time is, you know, it's like the culture, like if you get your culture right, it just helps and supports your strategy. Like whatever you want to do. Because here's the thing about leadership and team building and all these things. Um, I don't think it's that hard when things are good. The problem is in the leadership world, you're usually, it's, 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 I think what separates the good from the whatever average below average leaders is how you perform in the storm. I would always say, now here's the problem. As a leader, you're either in a storm, just coming out of a storm, or heading into a storm all the time in the leadership world. So you better like understand, like, this is my world. Like, I have to fight for these things. I have to like, it's not going to be good. Like, if it is, it's like this brief, and here comes the next storm, the next problem, the next, you know, it, the adversity hits, the best laid plans are blown up. Now what? That is what leadership is. And so if the culture, the foundation of who you are is not rock solid, I don't think you have a chance to be very successful. What do we like to call that? SWAT team mentality, right? <laughs> when you, you know, kick the door open, you got to be ready for anything. You know, one of my favorite things, and you've heard me say this, is like, you know, something would happen. I'd say the great ones adjust, you know, I'd say the great ones adjust. And then, you know, something would happen to me that would fall on my plate and I'd be like, Oh, and then one of my coaches say, Hey coach, the great ones adjust. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not a great one. And I don't even care about that right now. I'm just frustrated and mad. <laughs> that is funny. I, it, and it is funny. I mean, a lot of the things that you would always say, I, I, I don't want to say I'd struggle. I just, 
I'd have a hard time resonating with the importance of them at the time. And then I don't know if it's the clarity of stepping away from the game or getting ready to get married or any of it, but it is applicable and it is applicable to everyday life. But coach, this is a recruiting podcast. We don't have to talk about recruiting, but I do want to talk a little bit of football on here and, you know, something that was really dear to your heart that I think a lot of people, I don't know, maybe a little bit of uh, misconception around what loosely defines like OKG, our kind of guy. Yeah. Right. And to me, this was like one of the most fascinating dynamics uh, of coming to Washington because there was you who was just so successful and was a guy that had a a long uh, lineage of success in, in developing players and then wasn't like I was the first one, you know, you had Marshall Malkow as well, who's, who's now at Oregon, but you know, really where I'd come from Alabama, Michigan, it was more of a height, weight, speed game. Right. But you were so focused on like the intangible of what's between the ears and what's in the heart of the players. Can you describe loosely what a OKG is? And then why is that so critical to you in building a winning football team in locker room? Yeah. Um, yeah, the OKG, our kind of guy. And you're right. It kind of it, it kind of took on a different uh, kind of meaning to like people outside the program or fans. And, you know, I didn't care. I just shook my head. They just don't know. Like, I, I don't I don't get it, but they just don't know. And I tried to explain it, but they weren't, you know, people weren't hearing it. And so, you know, our kind of guy, it started way back when again at Boise, it was like, there was a certain, like everybody does things a certain way and they're not going to fit every place. They're just not like a five-star recruit is not a five-star recruit. If he doesn't fit your style, your system, your culture, he's a no-star recruit. Like that's a problem. So you really need to get the guys that fit what you're all about. You one need to know what you're all about. So the OKG like loosely, defined was a big time player that were like, yes, that's what it looks like on tape. (laughs) But also is a really good dude. That like, he's a good teammate. He loves the game. And so we had broke that down into different things. I used to always like to say like, you know, the talent thing's overrated, like talent. It's overrated. Kind of talent is our floor. The character part of things, if you want to use that word, we'd use wiring a lot, but the character is going to be our ceiling. And I just felt like over the years that like the the, the recruiting, the scouting professionals that are out there, all they looked is height, weight, speed, the tape, which is great. That has to jump out on for us too on tape to go, yes. But once they did, let's do a little bit more because I would, I have watched so many, I mean, how many thousands and thousands of high school football players have I looked at and, you know, some coach, one of our coaches would bring me a tape and go, what do you think? And I'd watch it and I'd say, yeah, I think it's good enough. Good enough. What do you mean? Good enough. This guy's got 20 offers and this guy, he's been offered by this, this, this. And did you see him? And I'm like, yeah, I think he's good enough. I just don't know the intangibles yet. Like, I don't know how he's going to handle being away from home. I don't know how passionate he is about this game. How much does he really love football or does he just really love recruiting? 
How competitive is he? How good is he going to be when we lose a couple games in a row? And he's going to start pointing fingers. And so those were the things that were so critical to me over the years. Like I, I could come up with a list that would like, I would just love to compare to like fans that maybe followed us. When I think about us at Boise State, here's just like a brief list of some of the guys that we had at Boise State that were just like, I would say were OKGs, like really like big time players that were really good dudes. So, so it'd be Matt Paradis, like Matt Paradis played in the Super Bowl, Peyton Manning's last year for the Denver Broncos. I got to say, because he was a starting center, a no-star recruit that played eight-man football that plays in the Super Bowl, right? Ryan Clady, first-round draft pick, you know, Kyle Wilson, first-round, Shane McClellan, first-round draft, Doug Martin, first-round, Demarcus Lawrence was not a first, but still playing. You know, Kellen Moore won 50 games in college football. Charles Leno, you spoke about. And then Leighton Vander Esch was another guy when we came to Washington, we were getting to walk on at Boise State. He becomes a first-round draft pick. Like, these guys all had this OKG. Like, they were really good players, but they're good. Okay, let's go to Washington. Trey Adams. Miles Gaskin, Vita Vea, Greg Gaines, Savon Ahmed, Jake Browning, Buda Baker, Caleb McGarry, first round draft, you know, like Vita Vea, first round draft, Joe Tryon, first round draft, Dante Pettis, second round draft, Byron Murphy, Taylor Rapp, Joe Trot. Those are all the same guys. You know, like that's an OKG, but they weren't hearing that. Like we come over to watch, oh yeah, you can't win with those type of guys. I remember Greg Gaines had committed to us at, at Boise. And so he comes with us, you know, before he signs, he decides to come to Washington. And was like, we can't take these boys, you guys. They're not good enough. It's like, yeah, okay. Like, their talent's good enough. And then all the research that we would do on this, we and they're still young. They're 17, 18-year-old kids. So who knows how they're going to really grow and progress. And you're not right all the time. But that's just why I was so passionate about that. Like, this is what an okay is like. They're really good players. We take, or we're not taking them. Like, if even if they're like really great kids and kind of good players, now we're not taking that guy. But nobody did, was really hearing that. Did Did you feel like? And those are, like I said, you got plenty, plenty of examples of the guys who had a lot of success. I guess this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like what's your ultimate goal? What's the ultimate goal on the field? I just remember coming to Washington and it wasn't like those were, there was flexibility within the conversations, right. That we would always have. And the first thing you always talked about was like, Hey, these guys, first and foremost, these guys got to be able to put it on tape first. Like they got to be able to play football to the standard that we're holding them here, which at the time was a conference championship level, which is what we're playing. It was three straight uh, New Year's Six Bowls at the time, too. I just wonder, you know, like for me, it felt like, and I kind of liked this because it, it felt like a challenge. It also felt like they were cutting out a lot of the minutia by saying, hey, we're really only recruiting the guys that we feel comfortable that can meet the standard of what we're asking them to do. Do you feel like that presented also a challenge in a way to say, hey, there might only be like, I remember specifically the one year, I forget what year, whether it was 18 or nine, I think it was 19, but it was, uh, it was a year, I might be wrong here. It was a, it was a year of uh, McMillan and Adunze. 
And, you know, we felt really, really good about that crop. Yeah. And John Humphrey was in there. He ended up going to Stanford, right? Taj Davis was a guy who heated up late in the process and really fit us. All three of those guys are having tremendous success right now. But I remember thinking to myself, we better get these dudes because there is a steep drop off after this of the type of guys that can play football at that level, but also fit us. It kind of had, it elevated our focus and our urgency on the board because there really wasn't that much depth of talent and fit at the same time. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that's always, you know, that's part of, as you know, better than anyone, that's part of building the board, right? Um, you're going to always like, you, you can't put all your eggs in just those, those guys, those baskets and think it's all or nothing. And then all of a sudden we're grabbing straws at the very end and who else we got. I always felt like in my mind, you know, the list was going to be deep enough that, and it's just like a balancing act. The list is going to be deep enough that if we don't get these guys, we're just going to keep, you know, we'll go down our list a little bit. And half the time, these guys, I mean, how, how many times have been like, we're so excited. We got, you know, Johnny is this recruit and you get him there and it's like, okay, not quite as good as we thought he was going to be early on. And then you get, you know, old Sam here to come in and you're, you're thinking, yeah, he'll be solid. And then it's like, whoa, he's way better than we thought he was going to be. You know what I mean? And so it's that balancing act like you just – but if you get this list on your board that's super – like you, you water it down. Now you're recruiting – now you're recruiting, you know, nobody. And so it's it's that fine line. Is there is there a part of the roster building process? You know, you, you, you still – do some work with with Fox Sports right on on, on Saturdays yeah. throughout yeah. the year, and obviously pay very close attention to the game. Is there a part of we'll call it the roster building process? You can call it the evaluation process. But as, as you stepped away and had more of a keen eye towards the national footprint and and following Big Ten football specifically, is there something that kind of stands out to you or say, hey, that that's kind of fascinating. Maybe that's something I didn't see because I was kind of in this, you know, uh, umbrella of, of Pac-12 football, but like to win at the highest level, here's some things that some teams are doing that's pretty fascinating to me. And if I were to ever, hypothetically, if I were to ever be back in this game, here's some things that I've maybe caught on to that yeah. I would want to apply to the way that we do business. Yeah. You know, we were so geographically um oriented you know for me i just always felt like i'd been out here for 30 years in the west and and knew so many coaches and people in high schools and level of football and that there was enough good talent out here that we can just recruit our you know the washington oregon california arizona colorado um utah for sure um and then maybe a little bit in texas And so as the world shrinks and you see kids flying all over the country, you might, if I was to be back in, I might broaden that a little bit and look a little bit wider. But again, that limits the information about, you know, that league that the kid's playing and how he's coached. Can can we really get him? Does he want? And so now all of a sudden you get a broader pool and you can water some things down. But I would probably – 
you know, you just see that. Like, I mean, the thing that I feel bad about for the these um, the West Coast teams is is so many of the Midwest and maybe even the Southeast teams. They're coming in and they're and there's just really good high school players out here, and they're snatching them right out of here because of the culture of football back in those places. It's just bigger, and those people are locked in. They like football, football, football. There's nothing like the West. You know, it kind of surprises me that these kids in the, you know, it's like, it's such a wonderful, you know, again, I'm biased, obviously growing up in the West, but there's so much to do out here. It's so progressive. It's so cool. But when it comes to football, like, it's just like all about. And so, you know, I still have hope that, you know, the West Coast football, because there's just really cool talent, but that, you know, it can, it can compete you know, with the best of the best that is out there right now in college football, because, you know, I'd be frustrated if I was a college coach right now. And we start to feel this a little bit right at the end of our run where they're coming in here and snatching some pretty good guys out of, out of, uh, you know, the Washington area. And it's like, wow, but that's just, that's the world we're in. So maybe we need to go back there and try to snatch a guy out of their backyard. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating. And then you, you add in the fact that USC and UCLA are off off to the Big Ten. It kind of opens the door up uh, from a marketing standpoint. You're going to have more of these teams from the traditional Big Ten now out on the West Coast. I think that's uh, a, a real opportunity for that. You know, I think of guys like in our time that bugged me till this day. You know, Nick Herbig, right, from Hawaii going to Wisconsin. Yeah. Jordan yeah. Botello going to Notre Dame. The one that killed me, Zach Charbonnet going to Michigan. And yeah. it just had to have them, you know. But there were some wins at the same time. You look at guys like Leatu Latu, who had a lot of offers, and guy that's going to have a big year for UCLA. Had a great bounce back year this past year under Akaika Malloy, and uh, I think of guys like Trent McDuffie, right? And right. coach, till this day, I mean, off topic here, the cleanest player. When I, when I talk about clean players, and people ask me what is a clean player, and I mean like checking every box. And this was a guy that ultimately didn't check a box being under five foot 11. He checked every box. I mean, from a tangible and intangible standpoint, I loved everything about that. There was no way you were able to look at him and say, even with the size, you know, he was You're a sub 11. Trent McDuffie, right? Trent McDuffie, right. Just, you know, so football it's, instincts. Not, it's, it's not clean player. It's OKG. He checked all of our boxes. Right, we're like. Well, that's and, where you and I are different. You you're talking about the person, which I get. But I also love him as a player. Right. And it's like, yeah, that's a big time guy. And then you get around the kid, you fall in love with the kid more than you do the tape. It's like that is the pro. That's it. And you know, they're not all like Trent McDuffie from the start. Like that's what we've learned, right? They grow and they mature through it. And it's like, sometimes you get those guys in there and you're like, oh man, I'm not sure if this guy fits us. And then five years later, five years, back in the old days when they'd stay five years, you're like, I love this dude. And I love him so much because of how he's, what he's been through, how he's grown, how he's matured. That's what coaching's all about. Trent McDuffie, one of my, he, he was just a pro, you know, from the onset, like you're around him. You're like, all right, this guy knows how to handle his business. And I want to say this. I'm going to give a lot of credit to Elijah Molden. I mean, what a guy to See, have yes. in, in the same room to be like, yes. right, that's the guy I got to follow up, you know. But then I go Both. back to Buda Baker. Right, right. The I go show. back to Kyle Wilson at like Boise. first. Like those guys are all the same. You know, they're kids, 
but they were passionate and they were so focused on ball and they loved it, not for the recruiting part of things to compete and to get better. They just, they're, they were so consistent in their approach. That's what you're saying. They were like pros, you know, but to me, that was the profile. And most guys, most places to me didn't want to do the homework to really figure that out. They just like, you know, take a bunch of good players and throw it to the wall and see who sticks. And I just wanted to be more deliberate in our approach. Yeah. And that was the advantage. Like people ask like, you know, how are you different at what? That was the advantage. Did the homework, do the homework and then you mitigate the risk. That's kind of what it felt like to me. Um, Coach 15, 20 minutes uh, here left. Um, So a couple more questions. I want to ask you, um, you know, I, I want to go back to Jacob Eason, and Jacob Hayner. Yeah. Where those two guys are now in that quarterback battle. And I mean, it's such a fascinating place for you to be in for all of us, because I think, you know, right. I mean, it's like the scouts call it like the fog of confusion. Right. And I think you were great always about being real, being honest and being able to navigate through what's what. And Jacob Eason, as we all know, was the five-star in-state prospect who started his career with Kirby Smart at the University of Georgia, transfers in. And then you got Jay Kaner at the time, right? Publicly, uh, not a guy that a lot of people knew, right? Three-star, was undersized. And the thing about Jay Kaner, man, I mean, like he was he was all piss and vinegar, you know? I mean, that's, that's just kind of how he was. And he carried himself with a lot of confidence until this day is the dude that operates with a huge chip on his shoulder. And that's probably, that's what makes him who he is. Those two personalities to me couldn't really be any more different. I just wonder when you go back and you kind of look at how that battle unfolded and the, and the way that y'all went, I mean, do you ever look at that differently? Do you think about it at all? Didn't, and, and, you know, your, your vantage point from studying two guys that were pretty different, not only from an on the field standpoint, but from a personality standpoint as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's so interesting (laughs) because here's the thing. Go back and pull out the news clips of me talking to the media. And I don't even know what was said exactly, but I know this, that was a hard decision. And everybody's like, yeah, right. I mean, Hayner is a baller and we knew it. And I did not want him to leave. That competition was super close. And I didn't, like, we really needed to get into the games of our system to let that play out. And, you know, Jacob Eason had played a whole year of college football as a starter already. And, you know, just the God-given tools that he had at 6'6", and the throwing mechanics and just so smooth and, Like you're looking at that and going, wow, like if this can, if he can keep growing, the upside on this guy just might be something like we've never seen before. But with all that being said, you have Jay Kaner right here who is a baller and can play and we knew it. And so when we gave the nod to Eason, that was a hard decision right there, but you got to give somebody a nod. And I told, you know, Jay Kaner, it's like, hang in there. Like what I think is going to happen is if he plays you know, like we, he's, he's probably only going to stay one year anyways, but I don't know how this is going to go this season. I really don't. And you're right there. And you're, and we told him too, you'll play this season. You're going to get your opportunity. But so 
when I look back at that, to me, it played out exactly like I thought it could. Like, you know, he stayed one year. Jacob Eason stayed one year and left. And um, I wish that – and I also think there were some ups and downs in that season with Jacob Eason that Hayner would have got a shot to get in there and really see what he could do. But, you know, everything happens. It all happens for a reason. And, you know, it worked out really good for Jake Hayner down there with, you know, Caitlin DeBoer and, the, and Tedford. And and so God bless him. I mean, I get it. Like, you, time's ticking in college football and you want to play. And so – and that was really before the transfer portal where you could go and just be immediately eligible and all those type of things. And so, you know, it's awesome. And has it surprised me what Jake Hayner's done? No. Is it surprised me that Jacob Eason's in the NFL, you know, been with the, no, it hasn't. These are two pretty good players. I mean, who would have thought, at least in my opinion, you know, who would have thought and, and Hayner going to Fresno state was no surprise that he's having the success. It's been pretty awesome to watch him go down to mobile in the senior bowl and have a lot of success there. And he's this guy that's, I mean, he's pretty marketable just based off the personality, you know, the way he carries himself with yeah. a big chest. So uh, always something I remember there. Coach, a, a little bit of a two-part question as we kind of get towards the finish line of this interview. Your interview process at the collegiate level, it, the NFL is a little bit different, but your interview process was the the most meticulous that I had ever been through uh, with any collegiate program. Uh, the first part of this question is, with that time, not not only on the phone, but when you have somebody – on campus, right, for five, six hours, and you're making an important decision. Let's not even call it a, a, a director job. Let's call it an on-field position coach or a coordinator. You know, what is it that you're really trying to get to? Because at that point, to me, it seems like you, the question's about, hey, can this guy do this job from a technical standpoint at that point have already kind of been answered. It's more about the behavioral part and how does this guy kind of fit into our program and our organization. I I wonder about that, about the questions that you ask that are maybe a little bit, I don't want to say unconventional, but, you know, I felt like the interview process when I went to Washington was like, it was, it was personal. It was, it was detailed. There were some, there were some really things that you were curious about that you kind of wanted to get to the bottom to with me that were important in your decision-making process. So when you go through that hiring process and what I learned from you, I will say this by the end of it, my favorite part about my job was the hiring process. I just, I just loved it. I enjoyed getting to talk to people, really getting to know them. And it was more about, I felt at the end of the day, I learned more about the candidate from the questions they asked than the, the, the answers to the questions that they were given, you know? So um, fascinated to kind of, to, to get your perspective on that. I mean, my, my approach, like we spent all this time talking about quote, OKGs, and doing homework and research and trying to figure out, does this guy fit us? It's no different. Uh, you know, when you're hiring your staff, I mean, and in fact, for me, it should be even more detailed and deeply drilled down on because these are older, mature people that you should be, you know, get better answers to. These young guys are still figuring it out as they're coming to college. So I'm like, and, you know, and then again, if you haven't worked with somebody, like that's always the thing. If you've worked with them, then I know, like, I know what, 
what I'm talking about when the storm hits, which we're always in a storm, right? So when the storms hit, how is this person going to react? And so that's what I wanted to know. And if I didn't know them, I just really wanted to get the answers. And so to me, it was, you know, it was about three things in general. And then you could drill down in these rabbit holes off this smart. Like, and I'm not talking about experience. Like that was a bonus. But what I'd learned is we would do things so differently anyway. Like you're a perfect example. You'd been to what places before you came to us? How many places and what were they? Three. Alabama, Cincinnati, Michigan. Okay. Three pretty cool places that know how to do it, right? So you get to us and you're like, wait, what? What are we doing here? Like, huh? <laughs> Did I just land on Mars? So that's what I've learned is like everybody's got a different way. And so we can teach them our way if they're smart, if they can figure things out, if they can be a proactive thinker. So my three words are smart, hungry, humble. So that's what I'm talking about, smart. Like the experience and wisdom and all, that's wonderful if it comes with that. But if not, our way is going to be different than most anyways. And as long as they, they're smart enough that we can teach them and they can figure it out quickly, and they learn quickly, we're good. The hungry, we know in this in this profession, and really in any profession, if you're trying to be great, if you're trying to be the best, you can't hide. You can't run around this work. It's not going to be like I'm a hard worker. You have to be so passionate, you know, so hungry and driven for this job and this profession that if you're not, please go sell ice cream. Go, People will like you a lot more. <laughs> You'll be happier. You'll put smiles on people's faces a lot more. So if you're not just super hungry and passionate, go do that. And then the humble thing is, you know, I love saying this. I think like the coaching world, you know, I'd always say, you know, I'm in the smallest profession with the biggest egos. And there's nothing like just a couple of egos to ruin everything for everybody. And this is about the team. And this is about the cause we're fighting for. And this is about the program. It is not about me as the head coach. And it's not about you as the director of player personnel or the offensive coordinator. And when it gets to be about that, man, it just gets miserable for everybody. Nobody likes to be around that. But everybody loves it when it's about us. But I also understand human nature. And so that's one of those culture things that I was, one, going to try to hire and get right on the front end. And then we all have our moments. I get that. I, me as a head coach, I could feel it. Like, okay, we're I'm, we're discussing and arguing for a way we're going to do something or what it's about. And then I could feel it like being, wait, this is just about my ego and my arrogance. Like, I want it to be my way. I want it to be my idea. I could feel it. It's like, that. oh, man, check yourself. Check yourself. You know this. We had one sign in that staff room. Your, your ego is not your amigo. And I meant it. Like, <laughs> Let's just do this for the greater good, for all of us, for the for the cause. Something I remember you telling me, we had that really we had that really difficult meeting going into year two. You and I, you know, getting yeah. on the same page, and you know, I think I I came in like you said, man. It was like it was my first director job. I'd been some big places, and I just it was it was a struggle kind of getting to the point where I felt like comfortable within the job, and I I felt it. 
and we we sat down, we had the conversation. And I remember the one thing you said, you was like, hey, you know, humility, people think that's about sometimes being quiet or being conservative about how you work. You very bluntly laid out that the definition of humility to you was the ability to take constructive criticism. And that till this day is something that has has stuck with me because I remember that meeting was one of the most beneficial uh, of not only my career, but was really important during that time. I needed that. And I, I felt like from that point on, you and I were really in lockstep in alignment uh, with everything that that we did there. Um, but it is, you know, it's so easy to get caught up and say, hey, it's, it's about me in this big team game. You know, I'm not getting this or I'm not getting it or, or this guy's giving me a rough time, whatever it is. So those times were always kind of like checkpoints in your career that you look back to and say, hey, I want to point back to that. And this is this is how I need to get better. Pete, a very general and vague question. It might mean something to you. It might it might not, you know, but I, I want to know. I mean, you're you're very different, most different uh, than any other coach I've ever been around because <laughs> I think you got I think you got this thing figured out, but it is completely different than everybody else. And what I mean by figure it out is that like you talked about, the you want to learn. You love that. That's that's the passion of you. And I think the thing that stuck out to me working for you was, you know, when I got hired, I was 25. But in the interview processes, I'm like, here's this guy, he's won so many games he's been successful everywhere he's been and he just wants to learn more from different people and that always stuck out to me when you when you know when you think about i don't want to say the legacy but how you want to be remembered with the game of football when your name is associated with it is there is there anything that comes to mind for you yeah i don't think about it like that at all i don't think about my name with the game of football you know from people that are college football fans like that, that is not it for me at all. What is it for me is the guys and gals that were in our building and what those relationships were like and are like, and looking back on those experiences and people going, that was pretty cool. I really like that. You know, I always had that in mind when as a coach, like that was one of the things as a head coach, I always wanted to like create an environment where I might not keep these guys super long or forever. We kept them pretty good, but not forever. But I, I always had in my mind, like I want them to look back and go, ah, oh, that's, that was the time that I really loved coaching was, you know, at Boise or at Washington, just how we, the relationships that were created and how we got along and the players and, you know, how we did this to get like that matters to me, but how I'm remembered in football and we won and da da da. Yeah. You're right back on society scoreboard there. That's, that's not what this thing's about. Well, I think certainly you have achieved that goal of, uh, you know, not just me, Everybody I talked to, I think, has had the opportunity to work with you, whether it's at Boise State or the University of Washington. I know you're not going to stick your chest out, so I'll stick it out for you. But <laughs> really, really, really special place to work and, and definitely something that I think everybody kind of carries with them, whether they're still at Boise State, still at Washington or, or wherever, wherever they are now. 
Chris Peterson, Coach Peterson, I appreciate you being on, man. You are welcome back anytime. I love seeing you. I love catching up. I love getting getting deep into these topics, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, it's awesome, Coop, man. I appreciate you, and I think it's really cool what you know what you're doing this podcast, and uh, you know, especially in the recruiting world, that I think it's so different than how we probably went about it. So to put put this different spin out there. I think it's great for the game of college football. I think if you would have asked yourself, if, if somebody would have asked you the day that you stepped away and said, three years later, yeah. you're going to be on a podcast on <laughs> Wednesday, uh, you know, in the morning with uh, your director right now is going to have a podcast and he's going to have vinyls in the back. You, you probably would have stuck with coaching. That would have been my guess. But <laughs> all good, man. No, Pete, I appreciate it, man. We'll, we'll try to get you back on sometime in the future. But your time... Always appreciate it, guys. Chris Peterson on the 24-7 Sports Football Recruiting Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the show anywhere you find your podcast, Apple Podcast, Apple Podcast Spotify Podcast. Include it. We'll get Andrew Ivins on next week. We've got another show tomorrow, so to make sure to join us again. Thanks a lot, guys. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball and baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does, (laughs) nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.